Well, good morning. Well, as many of you have heard me reference before, before coming on staff in the summer of 2012 at Wayside, I spent seven years as a social studies teacher and a coach at O'Connor High School. And while I was there, I spent the bulk of my time during those seven years coaching football, coaching baseball, and passing out amazing worksheets. <laughs> I also got to spend some time coaching track and field. See, you guys thought I was a one-trick pony. I coached football, baseball, and track. Um, as a matter of fact, even as I was thinking about this this morning, it took me back to fifth grade when I got invited to uh, try out for the Gifted and Talented program at Lock Hill Elementary. I already hear people laughing. I'm not sure. And as part of this test, they gave me a sheet of paper. And on the sheet of paper, there was just a bunch of circles. And there was a time test. And they said, draw as many pictures as you can using these circles. And I was like, oh, it's on. So they started the clock. And I was like, basketball, baseball. Soccer ball, golf ball, bowling ball, volleyball, and the list goes on. And I got done. I turned it in. I felt pretty good. And then a week later, I, re- I found out that I was not accepted into the program. <laughs> and to this day, I'm still a little unclear as to what happened. <laughs> but uh, I did love coaching track and field. And my favorite race to coach in tra- track and field was the 4 by 100 meter relay also known as the Sprint Relay. And this is a race that involves the four fastest runners placed around the track where each one runs 100 meters with the baton before they pass it to the next person who then runs 100 meters until ultimately they make one lap around the track. And while there are certainly some strategies that coaches can employ, the one strategy that just about all coaches employ is they put their fastest runner, their best runner, last in what is known as the anchor leg. And as the anchor leg gets the baton and runs, I mean, the the excitement just builds in the stadium and and everybody stands with great anticipation as to how this thing's going to finish. And when you think of God's plan of redemption, in many ways, it is a relay race. Maybe not a sprint relay, but it's a relay race. I mean, it starts in Genesis chapter 3, and we, and we go to Noah, and to Abraham, and to David, and so on and so forth. And they're all looking ahead to that anchor leg, the messianic leg, where Messiah is going to come, and he's going to bring victory and establish the kingdom that they have all desired. And last week, we talked about John the Baptist. Who, who came and his job, his role in this relay was that he was the forerunner to the Messiah. He came to prepare a way. He came to prepare a people for the Messiah. And he came with a baptism of repentance, telling them to turn from their sin, turn from their way of thinking that they can get right with God through some sacrificial system and fall upon the mercy of God. Get right, because Messiah is coming. That was John's message. And this morning, we have that redemption relay continuing as John is going to really pass that baton to Jesus, the anchor leg who's going to bring home the victory. Because starting in chapter 3, verse 21, from now on, the Gospel of Luke is going to focus on the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. And John fades to the background. And Luke marks this transition in his Gospel 
as well as he affirms this reality that Jesus is the true anchor leg at this section of the gospel by looking at two things. He's going to look at the baptism of Jesus, and then he's going to look at the genealogy of Jesus. And because these two things are really important, and these two things are connected, and yet they're quite different, tonight, or excuse me, this morning's sermon is really going to flesh out like two mini-sermons. We're going to look at the baptism of Jesus, and then we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus. So starting in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, let's look at the baptism. It says, now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven saying, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Now, if you recall from last week, we just spent time looking at the ministry of John the Baptist. And in verse 20, just one verse previously, where is John? He's in prison. And so here in verse 21, we see him baptizing Jesus in the Jordan. So clearly this is not chronological. This is a flashback, so to speak, because once again, Luke is categorizing John the Baptist's ministry, transition ministry of Messiah Jesus. And that transition is marked at the baptism and then the genealogy. And this is one of those places where I think the best way for us to work through the baptism is I'm going to answer, I'm going to ask and answer three questions. And here's, here's the three questions. Number one, what is the purpose of Jesus' baptism? Why is Jesus getting baptized? Secondly, who is present at Jesus' baptism? And what does that mean in terms of significance? And then thirdly, how does Jesus' baptism connect to Christian baptism, the practice of Christian baptism? So we have the purpose, we have who's present, and then we have the practice of Christian baptism that we want to look at. So let's start with the baptism of Jesus. And this is one of those places because if you read this section, anybody who reads about the baptism of Jesus, I think stops for a second and says, time out. If, if John the Baptist came preaching a baptism of repentance, then why is Jesus being baptized? I mean, what does Jesus need to repent of? And the answer is obviously nothing. And yet there's good reason for Jesus to be baptized. And this is a passage where it helps to look at another gospel that also has this account, a parallel account, where he gives us a little bit, he shines a little bit more light on this event. And so in the gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, this is what it says, starting in verse 13. It says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So essentially, Jesus comes to be baptized by John. John sees him, and John's like, uh, no, I don't think so. Not a good idea. I'm not baptizing you. And Jesus says, hey, it's okay. This is what has to happen. This is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? And what does the, the, he have to do with this baptism? What does it have to do with this baptism? 
Because when it comes to Jesus being baptized, there are really a number of different reasons people give. And I think there's elements of truth in a lot of them. They don't necessarily cancel each other out. Things such as he's affirming John the Baptist's ministry. He's affirming this this baptism that he's doing. I think that's true. He is uh, foreshadowing his death and his resurrection in the baptism. I think that's true. He's identifying with the sinner he came to save. I think that's true. But I think the main purpose for the baptism, which Matthew so eloquently puts from the mouth of Jesus, it is to fulfill all righteousness, is that Jesus is identifying himself with the righteous remnant of Israel. Because it was the righteous remnant of Israel that had repented and undergone John's baptism. God said, go through this baptism. That was the expectation for the righteous one in Israel. So that's what Jesus is going to do. Because he's going to fulfill it perfectly. So in other words, Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. And that righteousness included going through John's baptism, which is what the righteous Jews of the day were to do. Because when it comes to understanding Jesus, we have to realize he's not only human. He is a particular kind of human. He is a first century Jew. That's who he is. And so he's born into a certain system. He's born under a certain law, the Mosaic law. And it's a law that Jesus not only fulfilled, but he fulfilled it perfectly. So think back to his words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. What does Jesus say? Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. You see, Jesus did not come to abolish that which was good, but to fulfill that which had been distorted. And to fulfill it so perfectly that in his perfect fulfillment, he would stand as our perfect substitute. This, This is the doctrine of substitution which has been practiced from the beginning as they would sacrifice animals as a substitute to keep fellowship with God. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this substitution is connected to another doctrine that's key, and it's the doctrine of imputation. So I want to spend just a couple of moments talking about what that means and why that's significant, because imputation is one of those big theological words that we just kind of get overwhelmed by. But all it really means is that something is imputed. It is reckoned. It is given over. So in the regards to our our walk with God, when I place my faith in Christ, there is a cosmic transaction that takes place, a supernatural transaction, where my sin is imputed to him on the cross, past, present, and future. My sin is given, it's reckoned to Christ, and by faith, his righteousness is imputed, it's reckoned, it's given to me. Now, some may say, well, that doesn't seem fair. And that's kind of the point. Because salvation does not revolve around a gospel of fairness. It is a gospel of grace, of unmerited favor. Well, then someone else might come around and ask, you know, some thinking person. They say, well, how do we receive a righteousness that's not our own? Like, how does that work? And my answer would be the same way that a child receives an inheritance from their parent, even though they did nothing 
to earn it. They receive it because they are related. And we are related to Christ by faith. And thus we receive his inheritance, his perfect righteousness. And this is so important to understand and to be reminded of again and again and again and again. Because we have this tendency to think that it's our job to earn our salvation. Or that it's our job to contribute to our salvation. Or that it's our job to pay back our salvation. But the reality is that the necessary requirement for our salvation is the righteousness of God himself. It's the righteousness of God. And that is a standard that no human can meet. To me, it's equivalent, and I've said this before, to a, to a high jump competition to the moon. That's what it is. I went to the uh, Olympics in 1996 when they were in Atlanta. Not as a participant, shockingly, <laughs> but as a spectator. I was 14. And uh, while there, I got to see the track and field finals. Two nights of it. It was amazing. And one of the nights, a guy right down the road from San Marcos, Texas, a guy named Charles Austin, he won the gold medal in the high jump right in front of me. Now, I didn't take that picture, but that's the picture. He jumped seven feet, ten inches in the air. So he took Tim Duncan. He said, I'm going to up you one more foot. All right? One of the most legendary jumps, um, one of the most amazing jumps in human history. He almost jumped eight feet in the air. I mean, it's mind-boggling. And while that is pretty impressive, if the goal is to get to the moon, then he's 250,000 miles short. Are you with me? He's nowhere near where he needs to be. And the reality is that we have some people, and they may be your neighbor or in your friend circle, who are eight-foot moral high jumpers. They jump eight feet in the air morally. And they don't even need to be a Christian. They're just good folk. They, they volunteer their time to nonprofits. They're dependable. They're generous. They're kind. They're welcoming. They're just flat out nice. They are eight-foot moral high jumpers. They are 250,000 miles from the righteousness of God. And I don't care how athletically gifted you are or how morally gifted you are. You are a long way from the moon. And you can't get there in your own strength. You can't get there by your own effort, no matter how hard you try. We need someone to go in our place, to do the impossible, to do what we cannot do. We need a substitute, and we contribute nothing. We need Jesus. Jesus is our perfect substitute as the God-man. And it is his perfect righteousness that is imputed to us by faith, which is why we can stand before a holy God justified. Because the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God, has been given to you and to me by faith. And Jesus, he's perfect. And he revealed his perfection in time and space as a first century Jew who lived the perfect human life. 
And part of that perfection, part of that perfect fulfillment included participating in a baptism of repentance in which he had nothing to repent of. Identifying not only with the repentant sinners that he came to save, but also the righteous requirements of salvation that he came to provide. The purpose was to fulfill all righteousness. The next question that comes up is, well, who is present? Who's there? Well, we know John the Baptist is. He's dunking him. But we're also told that there's a couple other pretty significant spectators in the crowd, right? Namely, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. It says that the Spirit comes down like, like a dove. Not necessarily as a dove, but like a dove. So there's some mystery here. And that the Father's there, and he declares his pleasure and his favor upon the Son by saying, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. And any of you who know me, you know I want to spend a lot of time here talking Trinity. But for our sake this morning, I want to just look at two key things that are connected to this passage. First of all, this is one of the few places in the Scriptures where we do have all the members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, singled out together at the same time. And this is important because sometimes when you talk to people, they say, yeah, Trinity is not in the Bible. That word's not in the Bible. And you say, yes, I know it's not. But it's not an invention thrusted upon the Bible. It's an explanation of what is in the Bible. It's not an invention. It is an explanation of what the Gospels and what the New Testament reveals. Secondly, the fact that all three show up in such a dramatic way at the baptism signifies the significance of the event. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. Now, Jesus does not need affirmation. He is God incarnate, God in the flesh. But here at this baptism, he is confirmed as the Messiah, as the anchor leg of the relay race by the anointing of the Holy Spirit for this ministry and by the favor of God the Father being proclaimed on him. It is a remarkable moment in human history and one that we really cannot fully unpack with our finite minds. But it's a significant deal. And so we know the purpose. We've looked at who's present. Now let's talk about how this connects to Christian baptism. Because as interesting as it may sound, Jesus being baptized was not the first Christian baptism. We don't have Christian baptism until after the resurrection. And so while John's baptism and Christian baptism are connected, they're not the same thing. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance that looks towards the Messiah who is to come. Christian baptism is a baptism that looks back at the Messiah who came and who will come again. And so when we think of Christian baptism, I just want to give you three aspects of it to where you hear Christian baptism or you hear baptism and you go, bam, bam, bam. These three things, bam, bam, bam. And those three things are confession, commitment, and community. Confession, commitment, and community. Baptism is confessional in that it serves as a public confession of the one being baptized that they are saying Jesus is Lord and they are confessing orthodox beliefs about the person and work of Christ. They are also confessing that by faith they are identifying with Christ 
and thus they are buried with him in his death and raised with him in the resurrection. So there's a confessional aspect to baptism. Secondly, there's a commitment or committal aspect to baptism. Because the one being baptized is saying, my old self is dying. They're dead. I have died with Christ, and I am being raised to walk in a newness of life. So it is a commitment to turn from one's old way of life and to turn towards Christ as they try to live out this gospel in their life. So it's a confession, I believe this. It's a commitment, because of that, I'm going to do this. And then there's a communal aspect to baptism because it involves the family. And so the one being baptized is telling the local believers, the local body of believers, I am one of you. And the family of God is receiving them, and they're saying, you are one of us. And the one being baptized is saying, and I commit to living this out. And the church body is saying, we commit to helping you do that. Through encouragement, through equipping you, and through helping you when you fall into sin. So this is really, when you think of baptism, confession, commitment, and community. So we have the purpose of his baptism, to fulfill all righteousness. We have who's present at the baptism, namely the Trinity. And we have the practice of Christian baptism that's connected to John, but not the same. Because it's going to focus on confession, commitment, and the communal aspect. And now we move to the section that you have all been waiting for. The genealogy of Jesus. The main event, right? And I know some of you, you see genealogies pop up in the Bible and you just kind of like, skip, next section. And you're like, score, my one-year reading plan. I just got 20 free verses to skip over. You're laughing because you know it's true. (laughs) But remember, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture. That includes genealogies. So much like I did with the baptism of Jesus, I want to work through the genealogy of Jesus by answering three more questions. And the three questions regarding the genealogy are these. Number one, what is the purpose of these genealogies? Why are they there? They're not there for show. So what are they doing? Number two, what is unique about Luke's genealogy? What's going to be specific to Luke? And then number three, what is controversial, which may be a strong word, But what is something that's part of Luke's genealogy that sometimes throws people off a little bit? So that's what we're going to look at. What's the purpose? What's unique? And we're going to talk about where this so-called controversy lies. Well, in regards to the purpose of gospel genealogies, remember, it really depends on who is writing and who they're writing to. So the purpose is dependent upon the occasion of the gospel. Because while the gospels are historical... And the Gospels are biographical. They are ultimately apologetic in nature. These Gospel writers have been inspired by the Holy Spirit to present information that is true in a way that most directly impacts their intended audience. So, for example, Matthew's genealogy and and the emphasis of his Gospel is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the King of the Jews. 
So Matthew's going to focus his gospel and his genealogy to prove that, to speak to Christ's Jewish roots. When you think of the gospel of Mark, it has no genealogy. Because Mark presents Christ as the son of man, the servant, right? And he's writing to a Roman audience predominantly. And the Roman audience doesn't care where you come from. They care what you can do. What can you do? And so Mark is a gospel of action. You read Mark and it says, immediately Jesus, immediately Jesus, immediately Jesus. This is a man on a mission. That's going to a Roman audience. You look at the genealogy in the gospel of John. It's pretty short. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There it is. That's John's genealogy. Why? Deeply evangelistic. Presenting Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the one who's got the goods. He's God in the flesh. And then when you look at the Gospel of Luke, you see that in, starting in verse 23, he starts with Jesus, and then he works backwards to Adam. Why? Because Luke is presenting Christ as the perfect man. He is the perfect human. He is the second Adam. And this salvation that he's bringing is universal in scope. It's not just for one group. It's for all. It's available to all, and that is Luke's thrust. Now, as a, as a quick aside, just one thing that may help you when you look at genealogies, just to understand them, is it's not necessary to list every single generation within the genealogy. It's acceptable, and it was acceptable at that time to skip generations. So, for example, one of my great-grandfathers was an old East Texas boy named Silas Prince. He was my great-grandfather. And it would be totally acceptable... For my family to put together a genealogy in that day and say, Michael, son of Silas. They're not exhaustive. So when you're looking at the, the genealogy of Luke, this is not an exhaustive genealogy. Because the purpose of genealogy is connected to the aim of the writer. And who they list, in some ways, is going to be connected to what they are trying to convey. And the reality is we, that we do this all the time, don't we? We do this all the time. If I'm dealing with some academic or somebody who has a lot of letters at the end of their name, I may bring up or quote somebody who's in their field of academia, somebody who follows Jesus. And I may quote this guy or quote this gal or reference this person because they have credibility in that person's field. In a couple weeks, I'll give the uh, devotional to the O'Connor High School football team. When I do that, I'm probably not going to quote William Lane Craig or Augustine. I'm probably going to talk a little bit about the example of David Robinson or Tim Tebow or somebody who had played at O'Connor before them because I want to connect with the audience. And this is essentially what the gospel writers are doing in their genealogies. They are making a case for Christ, and they are tailoring the message to that group. And so the next question that I want to deal with is what is unique about Luke's genealogy? And this is best explained when comparing Luke's genealogy to that of Matthew. Because they're the two of the four, they're the two of the four gospels that have lengthy genealogies. And so when we do that, whereas Matthew's genealogy starts with Adam and ends with Jesus, 
stressing his membership in the Jewish race. Luke's going to start with Jesus, work back to Adam, stressing his membership in the human race. Excuse me, Matthew goes from Abraham to Jesus, stressing his Jewishness. Luke goes from Jesus to Adam, stressing his humanness. This is the perfect human. And this is also where the controversy comes in. Because the two genealogies, Matthew and Luke, now follow me here. Because I know I can lose you on genealogy. They are the same between Abraham and David. Okay? They are the same between Abraham and David. But between David and Jesus, they're different. They're dramatically different. And so instead of going through all the names, what I want to do is show you where the difference lies. On the screen, one side is Matthew and the other side is Luke. So if you look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, who is the earthly father of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. But then if you look on the other side, we see Luke's, right? Verse 23, Luke says that when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. So Matthew says that Jesus has got a grandfather named Jacob, who is the, son of Joseph, who is the father of Joseph. And Luke says Jesus has got a grandfather named Eli, who is the father of his supposed father, Joseph. So let's unpack that a little bit, right? Because we clearly have some differences. And there are really three solutions that have been offered. Throughout time. One is that the Bible is wrong. It's written by a bunch of normal men and there's, makes, and there's just mistakes all in it. That's not my position. Okay? It's not the one I'm holding to. So then there's two other positions that people have typically held to. One is that Joseph has two dads. Now that may sound crazy, but follow me here. That he has a father, a biological father, who dies. And then he has a stepfather who comes in, who legally adopts him. So in essence, you can say that Joseph has two lines coming from him because an adopted son also assumed the line of that adopted father. But then the third option is that the genealogy in Luke is not actually Joseph's at all. It's the genealogy of Mary. And that's actually the position that I hold to, that what we're looking at is actually the genealogy of Mary. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but I do want to tell you why I think that. Let me just give you a few bullets, so to speak. Number one, Luke emphasizes Mary much more than Matthew does. Matthew places an emphasis on Joseph. Luke places an emphasis on Mary. So that would fit with the first few chapters of Luke. Secondly, the fact that Mary is not listed in her own genealogy is really not that big of a deal. Because at that time, women were not listed in genealogies. So the shocker is not that Women are not listed in Luke's genealogy. The shocker is that women are listed in Matthew's genealogy. That's actually much more surprising than what Luke's doing. Thirdly, and I think this is a big key, and you heard me read it in verse 23, it says that Joseph is the supposed father of Jesus. He's the supposed father. To me, that is Luke giving us a big, fat hint that he's not talking about Joseph at all. He's talking about Mary. Plus, there's a prophecy in Jeremiah 22 on a guy named Jeconiah. Go read it. Go study it. That the Messiah would not come through this line. And that was the line of Joseph. 
And then finally, I think that it's Mary for, for some practical reasons that make sense to me. Because we know that through Matthew's genealogy, Jesus is a son of David through his earthly adopted father, Joseph. And yet some might argue, but he's not like really the guy. He doesn't have that royal blood in him, so to speak. It's in a, no. And Luke says, not so fast. Not so fast. He is adopted by his earthly father in the line of David, and he is a blood ancestor of David through his biological mother. He's king legally. He's king naturally. He's king biologically. He's got every base covered. He's the guy. He's the Messiah. Look no further. Look no further. And this is the point he's making. This Jesus of Nazareth, he's the chosen one. He's the chosen one. The son of God, the one who will bring home the victory. I know genealogies are tough, and, that, and, and I can kind of lose you in that, but hopefully you got something, a little something from that. Don't worry, next week it's going to get a lot easier. Roger's going to be back up here dealing with Jesus in the wilderness, tempted by Satan for 40 days. It's a, it's a piece of cake, no problem. <laughs> but in all seriousness, if you remember one thing from today, the main things are the plain things. The plain things are the main things. Jesus is Lord. He's the chosen one. He's the Savior of the world. And that reality is attested to by in history through the genealogy, through humanity and our brother John, and even through God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at his baptism. He's the chosen one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in, in closing, as I began to prepare this message, I really did not realize it was going to take on such a track and field emphasis, that that was going to be the illustrations and metaphors I ended up with. But that's just kind of how it, how it all developed. So I thought it was only fitting, it would only be fitting to finish the message looking at my favorite track and field athlete of all time, this guy right here, the flying Scotsman, Eric Little, whose pursuit of God in pursuit of the gold medal at the 1924 Paris Olympics is something of legend. It was made into a movie in the 80s, a movie called Chariots of Fire. And while many of you may know the story of Little and about how he won the gold medal and then went to serve as a missionary in China where he ultimately died, what you may not know about him, and this is the coach in me talking, is that he had a really unorthodox running style. Like as a coach, you would never teach someone to run the way Little ran. He, he, would, he would fly his head back like this. His arms would not work together. He, they said he was almost like he's scratching a wall. He took these big galloping strides. And he was so awkward and unorthodox that some people in that day, they looked at him and, and they just began to laugh. And they mocked his running style. But those who had seen him before and knew what he was all about, they knew that though he was unorthodox, he was special. He was unique. Especially those who had seen him run in a famous race in the spring of 23 in preparation for the Olympics. And it's shown here in the movie.
do that? Can you believe it? This cat's not back yet. Little was a man described as one with the heart of a lion. The heart of a lion. And when we think of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is the lion of Judah. He is the son of David. He is the son of God. He is the chosen one. And this lion didn't come to earth to win a gold medal. He came to purchase our salvation by his blood. And like the flying Scotsman, he was a little bit unorthodox. He was the king of kings who got down on his knees to wash his disciples' feet. He was the God-man who worked with his hands as a blue-collar worker. He's the true holy of holies who dined with sinners. He's the son of man who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Son of God who hung on a cross. And when people saw him, some laughed. And they mocked him. And and some still do. But those who saw him for who he truly was and those today who see him as he truly is through eyes of faith, we know different. We know that he is special. He's special. He's the anchor leg in the race of redemption. He's really every leg in between. And he persevered to the end for the joy that was set before him until he finished the race and he said, it is finished, paid in full. And through his victory, Through his life, death, and resurrection, we too may experience victory by faith in him. A victory greater than any metal. A victory more valuable than gold. The victory of eternal life. And in a surprise turn of events, this chosen one has chosen us to carry the baton. To carry the baton of this great gospel of grace to our homes, to our schools, to our workplaces, and around the world until he comes again to complete that which he began. May we run the race. I mean run the race. And when we fall down, would we get up and keep going? So that along with the apostle Paul, we might say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we come before you and we confess that there is nothing we can do to get right with you. You are holy, unstained by sin. And we are sinners, justly condemned to death. But in your holiness and in your grace, in your love and in your mercy, you did what we could not do. And God the Son, you took on flesh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who will always be, who will come again. And you lived the perfect life on this earth. You fulfilled all of perfection. In every decision, in every movement, in every interaction, perfectly righteous. All the way to the cross where you died for sin. The sin of the world as the Lamb of God. And you took our sin, past, present, and future. And it is by faith in you as you rose from the dead on the third day, showing that you had conquered sin, you had conquered death, that you are who you said you were. And that by faith in you, we might receive your righteousness as a child of God, as a friend of the holy God. And Father, I pray if there's anyone in here who's just been working so hard to get right with you. I mean, they are doing their spiritual squats. They are doing, drinking their spiritual protein shakes. They are doing whatever it takes to try to get right with you. God, would you reveal to them that they're only jumping an extra three inches because of that? That, it, that our salvation comes by receiving by receiving what you have done on our behalf and by putting our trust in you that we might receive your righteousness. God, I pray if there's anybody in here who just feels like they'll never get to God, would you affirm that reality that they can't on their own strength so you came to them. You came here. And Lord, for anybody in here who knows you, I pray that you would help us run. I mean, that you would help us run well. And that when we fall, we'd get up. And that when we're tripped, we'd keep going. And that when we're knocked to the side, we'd keep our eyes on the prize. And that we would run in such a way that brings you great delight as our Father and our God. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus, the Lion of Judah the Son of David, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.